You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. And welcome to the 1883rd edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 16th of June 2022. The editor of this edition is Sheila Franklin, the producer is Pat Needham, and your readers are Carol and David Goodrum. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And now for the headlines. Rail services facing major disruption during strike. Immediate repairs needed in 90 Suffolk school buildings. 42,000 tickets in two years. Raising a glass to the Queen for Platinum Jubilee. No passenger trains are expected to run in East Anglia away from the main lines to London during next week's three days of strike action by the Rail Maritime and Transport Union. The RMT has called one-day strikes for Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday as part of a dispute it has with train operators across the country and network rail over pay and job security. Greater Anglia, along with all other train operators in the country, is expected to announce details of its services on strike days on Wednesday. But it has already warned that train travel will be extremely difficult or impossible on strike days. On those days, the only services running will be an intercity service between Norwich, Ipswich, Colchester and London, and a stopping service between Colchester and London. And these services will be seriously reduced. There will be nothing like a regular timetable operating, and services will only operate between 7.30am and 6.30pm. There will be no early morning or evening trains. There will also be a reduced service between London and Stansted Airport, and Cambridge, but again trains will only operate during the day. Other routes, including those from Ipswich to Lowestoft or Ipswich to Cambridge, will see no trains whatsoever. A statement from Greater Anglia urged people to look for other ways to travel on strike days. If there is not a resolution to the dispute, and also warned there could be disruption on days before and after the strikes because trains will not be in the right place. The statement said, We would stress that there will be very few trains running and only between the hours mentioned, so it will be very important to check the detailed timetables once they are published. Even when there are some services operating on strike days, the general advice will be only to travel if necessary. On the days after the strikes, it is expected that services will start later than normal. While both sides in the dispute have said they are prepared for talks, there are few signs of a breakthrough before the first start of next week's strikes is due to start. Nearly 100 schools in Suffolk have been found in need of immediate repairs in a report from the Department for Education. 90 schools in the county were given a D rating for at least one building on their premises, meaning they are deemed life-expired and or serious risk of imminent failure. Categorised by parliamentary constituency, these 90 schools are spread as follows. 17 in Bury St Edmunds, 15 in Central Suffolk and North Ipswich, 7 in Ipswich, 14 in South Suffolk, 14 in Suffolk Coastal, 9 in Waveney and 14 in West Suffolk. A spokesman for Suffolk County Council said, Just like our homes, from time to time school buildings will need repairs and we make these as quickly and efficiently as possible. These may range from broken lighting, an uneven playground or something substantial like roof repairs which need urgent attention. As well as the review by the Department for Education, we carry out regular checks on our buildings. Health and safety within our school buildings is incredibly important to us. The Government's Condition Data Collection programme is designed to collect data on the building condition of government-funded schools in England. Following visits to every state school in England between 2017 and 2019, 
Surveyors collected data on 22,000 schools comprising 64,000 teaching blocks. One key finding from the programme was that it would cost £11.4 billion to repair or replace all defective elements in the school estate. Though data relating to England as a whole was published in May 2021, parliamentary constituency and local authority specific data was only set out after a parliamentary question at the end of last month. Following calls to make the report's findings public, Director of Capital at the Department of Education, Rory Kennedy, has recently confirmed that the government will publish a summary report later this year. Many are still pushing for the reports to be published in full, but Mr Kennedy warned that schools could be deluged by various contractors who may or may not be qualified approaching them for work. More than 42,000 parking tickets have been issued by West Suffolk County Council since taking, an on, since taking on enforcement powers two years ago in what is being hailed as a positive for residents. The local authority handed out 24,427 penalty charge notices for illegal parking in the 2021-2022 financial year and 18,052 for the previous year, according to statistics obtained by the Berry Free Press using the Freedom of Information Act. The top five parking ticket hotspots for the last year were High Street Newmarket, 1,276, Angel Hill, Berry St Edmunds, 1,096, St John's Street, Berry St Edmunds, 775, Guildhall Street, Berry St Edmunds, 740, Angel Hill Car Park, Berry St Edmunds, 624. Reasons for the parking violations include vehicles being parked without clear display, being parked longer than permitted, and being parked in a residence place. When West Suffolk Council took on civil parking enforcement from April 6, 2020, which gave it powers to deal with roadside parking offences, whereas previously this was managed by the police. Up until then, the council only enforced its own car parks and residential parking bays under the Road Traffic Regulation Act. Councillor Joe Rayner, whose Abigate ward in Bury includes Angel Hill, Guildhall Street and St John Street, said... Some of the streets in the medieval grid are very narrow and if you get people parked where they shouldn't, it can be dangerous and hinders emergency services getting through. People who get parking tickets are obviously very unhappy about it, but the rules are there for a reason and we don't necessarily see it at the time. I think it's a positive. I'm pleased the residents have seen it as a positive as well and have seen the positive impact as well. The Churchgate Area Association, which represents residents and businesses in the medieval grid area of Berry, including Guildhall Street, had called for greater enforcement of illegal parking in the past. Its chairman, Vivian Gainsboroughfoot, said it used to be a wild west, but parking violations had been tamed. It's been absolutely brilliant for the centre of town. There's no question about it, she said. A wave of red, white and blue themed festivities swept through communities to celebrate the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Neighbourhoods decorated in bunting and lined with gazebos and tables for their street parties raised a toast and enjoyed a range of entertainment to mark Her Majesty's 70 years on the throne. The return of Stonemarket Carnival kicked off the festivities on Thursday with hundreds of spectators marvelling at the colourful display of floats, um, dances and marching bands. It featured a Battle of Britain memorial fly-past, with the crowds applauding the Lancaster Bomber, and the event was followed by the two-day Stowe Fiesta. On Thursday night, beacons were lit across towns and villages, including in Bury St Edmunds Abbey Gardens. Residents in Barrow enjoyed an afternoon, Royal Tea Party in the Rectory Garden on Friday and BBC Radio Suffolk's Mark Murphy and Leslie Dolphin attended on Saturday when the Village Hall hosted the Barrow Big Breakfast. A fair at Hawley on Saturday included, included games, face painting and a fancy dress contest. Meanwhile, Ruffham, 
enjoyed a Jubilee walk starting at Blackthorpe Barn and the Charles Burrell Centre in Thetford held a colour run with two routes, a 5k cross country designed by marathon runner Mel Sturman or a 400 metre route. Lavenham's festivities graced the national stage when the village was part of the BBC's coverage of the big Jubilee lunch on Sunday. There was entertainment for all the family at Milden Hall's Wright Royal Lark in the park. In Bury St Edmunds, Southgate Community Partnership held a summer dance, a church service and a picnic, while the town held multiple street parties. Current and former Suffolk voices have had their say on a letter sent to the government about free school meals. Teaching unions around the country have sent a letter to the Chancellor and Education Secretary asking for free school meals to be provided to all children whose families are on universal credit. The letter sent to Rishi Sunak and Nadim Sahawi stated that vulnerable children who do not receive free meals are facing a real barrier to learning. Former head of King Edward VI School in Bury St Edmunds and current General Secretary of the Association of School and College Leaders, Jeff Barton, said, We are very pleased to support the Food Foundation letter calling for free school meals to be offered to all children in families receiving universal credit or equivalent benefits. It is vital in general that free school meal provisions has extended to more children, but particularly so at this time because of the cost of living crisis, which is pushing many families deeper into poverty. Ensuring that all children who need this provision receives a free school meal is hugely important, not only in terms of health, but also education, as children who are hungry are not in a fit state to learn. Jack Abbott, former Suffolk County Council education campaigner, said, Things are incredibly tough for so many families. We know there are tens of thousands of children living in poverty in Suffolk, but because of restrictive criteria, many miss out on free school meals. Expanding free school meal eligibility to all families who receive universal credit is a straightforward measure, but one that could make a real difference to so many children. We know that children struggle to learn on an empty stomach, but more than that, no child should be going hungry, full stop. The government has the ability to help ease this terrible situation, to prevent children from having to suffer from hunger. They have to act now. The government says it has issued guidance to local authorities and schools explaining the eligibility and the protection arrangements under universal credit for those already receiving free school meals. A spokesman said, We have permanently extended free school meal eligibility to children in all households with no recourse to public funds, subject to maximum income thresholds. Care workers are leaving their jobs unable to meet rising travel costs as fuel prices edge towards £2 per litre, a Suffolk Home Care Director says. Prices have been steadily rising for months and are forcing many care workers to search for alternative <coughs> means of employment, explained Prema Ferbendori. Director of Primary Home Care. According to her, rising fuel costs are proving a nightmare. She said, We really tried to see what more we could offer care workers for their, for their mileage costs, but we've now pushed ourselves to the limit and we can't do any more. They're still really having a problem, especially with domiciliary care. It's a nightmare. Workers can't come into work and they're leaving. You can understand why they're looking for jobs where they don't have to travel. The Suffolk-based service offers care to adults in their own homes. This includes those with dementia, end-of-life care, physical or mental health difficulties and many other complex medical requirements. Mrs Fairburn Dory continued... There is a big backlog of people who are waiting for care packages and we can't shift it because we don't have the staff. But what will happen to those people? We go to all these meetings with the NHS and the local authority. We try to work together to see if there is any way that we can improve things, but we just can't. Everyone is a little bit tight for money, 
because the budget from the government is just so poor. So as much as they want to help, they can't because they don't have the cash. As more and more care workers leave social care, the pressure increases for those who remain. As they try to cope with the increased responsibility, Mrs Fairburn-Dory explained, the scope for human error increases. So, patient safety does come into this too. We need some kind of assistance, whether it is in the form of a grant to help with the rise in fuel prices, to encourage the people who, who did think about working in social care to come back, because there will be some help with their travel costs. Items belonging to the late Radio 1 DJ John Peel raised nearly £500,000 when they went under the hammer. The collection, auctioned on June the 14th, included test pressings of Sex Pistols singles, which sold for £20,400, and a John Lennon stroke Yoko Ono signed album, which sold for £15,300. The 200 lots were auctioned at Bonhams in Knightsbridge and amassed a total of 465000 £784. Born John Ravenscroft, the broadcasting legend lived in Great Fimbra, near Stowmarket. He died of a heart attack in 2004 at the age of 65. Speaking prior to the auction, the Ravenscroft family said, In going through the accumulation of 40 years of pop moments, we decided that some of the most interesting items might find a home with fans of his programme or of the artists whose music we played. Stowmarket is now home to the John Peel Centre for the Creative Arts, a live music venue which serves as a tribute to the life and times of the much-loved broadcaster. One of the most recognisable voices to listeners of BBC Radio Suffolk has announced he will be stepping down as host of The Breakfast Show. BBC Radio Suffolk's long-standing presenter, Mark Murphy, announced the news during his show yesterday morning. Mark has presented the show on and off for over 20 years and said it feels the time is now right to hand it over to someone else. He added, Presenting the BBC Radio Suffolk Breakfast Show has been my dream job. To host this prestigious programme in my home county has been a real privilege. Growing up, I always wanted to be on the radio. I've enjoyed every minute of it and I've worked with some incredibly talented people. Being the first voice people hear in the morning as the alarm goes off, is very special, but the 3.30am starts are now taking their toll and it's time to pass it over to somebody new. The news comes after Mark's wife, Leslie Dolphin, announced her retirement last month. Mark made his first appearance on the BBC Radio Suffolk Breakfast Show in 2000, just before Ipswich Town won promotion to the Premier League and has been a firm favourite with the Suffolk audience. He first found national recognition in 2003 when he was crowned the UK Radio Academy News Presenter of the Year, beating the likes of Radio 4 and 5 Live. The judges described him as the epitome of what a broadcaster should be in his reporting of news and holding those in power to account. He went on to win a string of awards for his broadcasting, including Radio Academy recognition of his coverage of the Steve Wright killings and his anti-litter campaign, Don't Be a Tosser. After a five-year break from breakfast, he was back in 2016 for a second spell. During this period, he helped steer Suffolk through Brexit and the Covid pandemic, being a trusted voice in difficult times. Mark was recently awarded an MBE in the Queen's New Year's Honours List. Although he is stepping down as host of The Breakfast Show, he is not leaving BBC Radio Suffolk. He will be moving to host two new shows at the weekend on Saturday and Sunday from 10am to 2pm. Talking about his new show, Mark said, I'm super excited about the new programmes, which means my Ipswich Town fanzine show, Life's a Pitch, will be back, and I'll have a few surprises for those tuning in. Mark's last breakfast show is on Thursday, June the 23rd, with his new show beginning on Saturday, July the 9th. Increasing customer numbers, more special events and plans to become financially self-sufficient 
are ambitions voiced by a task group on West Suffolk's markets. West Suffolk Council formed the group last summer to assess future developments of the district's six markets, as well as any opportunities and improvements that can be made. The authority operates regular markets in Brandon, Bury St Edmunds, Clare, Haverhill, Milden Hall and Newmarket, as well as special events such as those at Christmas. The task group has published its recommendations ahead of next week's scrutiny committee meeting. Among its ambitions are to attract new customers by bolstering its promotion of the markets, developing a plan that will include measures to encourage new traders, improve footfall with more special event markets, review licensing and charging arrangements for stalls, and consider alternative funding arrangements to make the markets financially self-sustaining in the next three years. Working Group Chair John Burns, Independent Councillor for Haverhill, for Haverhill East, said West Suffolk Council has well-liked and evolving markets across the district. Each of them face different challenges and opportunities in their individual towns. From our work, it is clear markets play an important role in the local economy and are a focal point for our communities, influencing the health and well-being of residents and the people that use them. Overview and Scrutiny has looked at how we can build on the successes we have had and, importantly, further strengthen them. This has been a cross-party and collaborative effort involving the portfolio holder that has looked at a range of evidence including engagement with traders, businesses, the BID and members of the public who use and crucially don't use our markets. In addition, we looked at markets outside our area as well as talking to local and national experts. We received feedback from representatives of the National Market Traders Federation, which commended the work being done across West Suffolk on markets, such as our initiatives for business startups and support for existing businesses. We have put forward recommendations using all this information for Cabinet to look at to support them and the Council in the overall aim of supporting the local and national economic recovery. Scrutiny Committee will assess the group's work on Thursday next week before presenting its findings and recommendations to Cabinet. More than 600 people came together in Bury St Edmunds and raised £40,000 plus for life-saving cancer research. The Race for Life saw people taking part in 3K, 5K and even a 10K events at Nowton Park with all proceeds uh, going to Cancer Research UK. Some £2,000 of this was raised by Team Wilbert, 11 members of the Wilcox family, led by seven-year-old Ruby Wilcox. Ruby herself has raised over £900 and said she is feeling very proud. She was determined to run the race for her mum, Henny Wilcox, who has been uh, diagnosed with breast cancer. Ruby completed the race with her dad, Dale, aunties, uncles and cousins. She was dressed from head to toe in pink, the colour adopted by the breast cancer event, although she said that personally she prefers blue. It was very hot, but I had a good time, she said. Ruby skipped over the finish line, said Mum. Henny, 37, we're all very proud of her. She has been amazing, not just the fundraising, but her, her whole attitude throughout all of this. With how positive and how good she's been, Ruby is an inspiration. Organisers are grateful to everyone who took part. Event manager Rebecca Day said, It's been wonderful to see so many people turning Nowton Park into a sea of pink, with hundreds getting into the spirit of Race for Life with their T-shirts and tutus. It's a privilege to see why people are taking part too and you can't help but be moved by the messages on people's back signs as they think of those close to them who have been affected by cancer. We thank everyone for coming along and to all their supporters for doing their bit to help us beat cancer sooner. Michael Jarvis, who's Cancer Research a UK spokesman in Bury St Edmunds, said, We are incredibly grateful to everyone who took part in Race for Life in Bury St Edmunds. Life-saving research is being funded right now thanks to our supporters who fundraise. 
Cancer Researchers UK's Race for Life, in partnership with Tesco, raises funds for world-class research to help beat 200 types of cancer, including bowel cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, lung, brain cancer, children's cancers and leukaemia. A sentencing hearing for a jealous and controlling Stowmarket man who held a BB gun to the back of his partner's head while she was in bed has been adjourned to allow him to be assessed by doctors at a mental health unit. Before Ipswich Crown Court yesterday was 32-year-old Miles Stainton Fitzgerald of Tavern Street, Stowmarket. He had denied possessing an imitation firearm with intent to cause fear of violence in September 2020, but was convicted by a jury after a two-day trial in March. He had earlier pleaded guilty to controlling and coercive behaviour and damaging property. On Friday, Judge David Pugh adjourned the case until June the 15th to allow doctors to arrange a date for Stainton Fitzgerald to be assessed under the Mental Health Act, with a view to him being transferred from prison <clears throat> to hospital for treatment. During his trial, the jury was told that Stainton Fitzgerald held the BB gun to the back of his partner's head and told her, Tell me, who has been messaging you or else? When Stainton Fitzgerald took the gun away, he told her it was not loaded, but she was so scared for her safety that she ran out of the flat. With the way he was acting and threatening her, she thought she could have been shot and felt he was totally out of control, said Joanne Ely, prosecuting. She said that when she told him she was calling the police, he allegedly told her, if you call the police and I went to prison, I'll break your jaw when I get out. Miss Ely told the court that Stainton Fitzgerald had been in a relationship with the alleged victim for three years, and to begin with, he had been kind and loving. However, in 2020, his behaviour changed, and he would accuse her of cheating with male colleagues at work and on Facebook, and he would make her log into her social media accounts so that he could check who she had been in contact with. As the relationship deteriorated, Stainton Fitzgerald became physically violent towards the woman. On the day of the incident with the BB gun, he accused her of having an affair and had kicked her to the lower back while she was in bed and then smashed the laptop against her back. A 39-year-old man has died after his car crashed into a lorry that was parked in a lay-by on the A14. The westbound carriageway between Hawley and Woolpit was closed for several hours after the crash at about 1.40am on Tuesday. A Suffolk police spokesman said it involved a white Audi A3 and a lorry. The ambulance service and fire crews were also in attendance, with the Audi driver uh, taken to Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge having suffered serious injuries. A police spokesman confirmed yesterday he later died in hospital. The A14 westbound was closed by police at the Beacon Hill Junction with the A140 before reopening at about 9.30am later that morning. The man's death is the latest fatality to be reported on the roads in Suffolk within the last month. On May the 30th, two men were killed after a three-vehicle crash on the A11 between Elvedon and Barton Mills. Just days later, on June the 1st, a woman in her 70s was involved in a crash between a lorry, a Land Rover Defender and a Porsche. She died after being airlifted to Addenbrooke's Hospital for treatment for serious injuries. And on Sunday morning, a motorcyclist was pronounced dead at the scene following a crash on the A1141 between Brent Ely and Monks Ely in the Baber district. Speaking earlier this year, Inspector Gary Miller of Suffolk Roads and Armed Policing Team urged drivers to be mindful of other road users to prevent more crashes. He said... It is incumbent on all road users to consider their own safety as well as the safety of others. Demolition work has started on a former middle school site in Stowmarket. The site has been redundant since Stowmarket Middle School closed in 2015 when Suffolk moved away from the former three-tier education system. It is now being transformed into 38 homes for either shared ownership or a social or affordable housing. Initial activity involves boundary hoardings going up 
and consultation of an appointed ecologist to mitigate any impact on bats currently in hibernation. The development will also include sustainability measures such as electric car charging points across the site. A spokesman for Mid-Suffolk District Council said, we realised there was an opportunity to buy it as a brownfield site in order to help meet local housing need and breathe new life into this town centre site as part of our wider vision for Stowmarket. Internal a demolition work is taking place on a former Debenham site in Bury St Edmunds and it's causing a noise nightmare for a nearby resident. Tom Murray, who's 79 and who lives in a ground floor flat in Prospect House on Prospect Row, said the pounding, bashing and crashing started nearly three months ago and hasn't stopped since. According to Mr Murray, construction starts promptly at 7am and ends at 4pm, causing vibrations throughout the homes of all six tenants in the block of flats. He is particularly bothered by the noise, which, he claims, overrides his own music, and the shaking, which he said causes picture frames to fall off the wall. Mr Murray said, One lady just takes her hearing aids out, but for others it's a nightmare. We have a soldier in residence who has had to leave the building multiple times because he has PTSD. Laundry has also become a sore subject in Prospect Row, as Mr Mr. Murray claims there is so much um, dust as a result of the building work that they can only put their washing out when construction pauses at the weekends. He suggested a temporary wall would help reduce um, the dust issue which impacts him the most as his washing line is within a foot of the low brick wall which separates his garden from the building site. Though the demolition works are internal, he said he sees the vans, lorries and cranes moving round outside his flat on a daily basis. He regularly tags West Suffolk Council in tweets complaining about the disturbance and claims he has also submitted an official complaint to them. A West Suffolk Council spokesman said, This was reported to us in May. We contacted the demolition company and helped instigate a meeting between them and the resident to discuss the issues. That took place in mid-May and our environmental health team haven't had anything reported to them since. The construction work is due to finish later this month and plans have been submitted to install a cinema into the empty shop's And now we're moving on to our letters section, and it's perhaps no surprise that many concern the recent Platinum Jubilee celebrations. We start with a selection on this topic, aimed at showing the range of opinion. And the first one is from Barry Peters. It's entitled, How HRH Took Over the News Headlines. We waved flags. The princes barely made eye contact. Neighbours put out bunting and had street parties. Simple pleasures made the weekend one to remember and one which, like the Silver Jubilee for me, will live on in the memories of children for the rest of their lives. And at the heart of it all was a now very frail-looking Queen who seems to be feeling the loss of her beloved Duke of Edinburgh very markedly. At the very heart of all the news coverage on our screens, big and small, were journalists. Those same reporters who might be reporting on another spat in the House of Commons or quizzing a company boss about record profits had turned their attention to a lighter side of the news agenda, our monarch. Some struggled to fill in dead periods to camera. Others found magnificent ways to keep their audience entertained and tuned in. It was a weekend for good news. It isn't always that way, but all our digital, print and broadcast teams should take a collective bow for a royally good story well told. Philip Richardson of Sudbury writes that the Jubilee showed living history. Sir, what a fantastic four days the Platinum Jubilee proved to be here in Sudbury and indeed throughout the country. After a miserable two years of Covid it was surely what was needed and I pay tribute to the Sudbury Town Council team and many others involved for all the planning and hard work behind the scenes which made it so memorable. This was living history You only have to look back at the pictures from last century to be aware of celebration in days gone by. 
and without doubt this weekend will be remembered 70 years on into the next century by the young people who participated, just as those of us from the older generation recall celebrating the coronation in 1953. Part of the success must also be attributed to the support from the local press for the publicity events received running up to the weekend, and indeed for the reports and pictures subsequently provided by the staff, reporters and and photographs working while the rest of us were enjoying ourselves. Congratulations to all. Whilst Margaret Kenyon Holden has written via email and she thinks that the Jubilee effort was disappointing. I moved to Bury 40 years ago and very much enjoy living here. Perhaps we're spoilt by so many things going on in this town, but the lack of Platinum Jubilee celebrations was a real disappointment. Where were the crowds of cheering people to greet our local heroes in the Festival of Suffolk Torch Relay, who, apart from the torchbearers, even knew this was happening? And, apart from St John's Street, where was the bunting? Council resources are no doubt stretched, but Berry can't be alone in this. Other towns and villages in the county seem to manage a much better show. Even the youngest members of our community are unlikely to see another Platinum Jubilee. What a shame Berry didn't make more of it. And this letter is from Sally Kitt from Ipswich. Sir, well said, Patrick Ward. Buckingham Palace is now our version of a Disneyland. That's opinion in the East Anglian Daily Times on June the 9th. I had no idea that I was in the majority, for once, as part of the 51% who weren't celebrating the Jubilee. I'm pretty sure also that most of those holding street parties were simply using an opportunity to get together with neighbours rather than really caring much about an expensive, outdated institution. And this letter is from Jenny Agata, the actress. And her letter is headed, Action Stations for a Big Lunchtime. Personal contact with friends, family and neighbours is one of the things I sorely missed during the pandemic. And it's so lovely that 2022 has been a year when we could start celebrating and being together once again. The Jubilee celebrations reminded me of all the wonderful fates and events I've been to over the years, particularly when my son was young, although I'm still not sure he's forgiven me for making him walk all around the village wearing a boat costume I'd made for a fancy dress competition, even though he won. During the recent Long Bank holiday weekend, I was busy working on the next series of Call the Midwife and not able to get to a street party of my own, but those scenes of communities coming together across the country were wonderful to see. This month, a charity I'm a big supporter of, Action for Children, is partnering with Iceland to encourage friends, families and neighbours to foster their own sense of community and get together and host a big lunch, although it doesn't have to be big. A picnic in the park or lunch with friends will do, So if, like me, you didn't get the chance to get together with those you love over the Jubilee weekend, and you want to, it's not too late. By hosting a big lunch for Action for Children, you can also raise money to help to support vulnerable children and families around the country. We're now leaving the Platinum Jubilee, and the the next section shows other issues concerning writers in the letters pages. This letter is from Roger Spiller of Ixworth and is headed, Better Housing Strategy Needed. Sir, a recent article in the East Anglian concerned the large development of 1,375 new homes by St Joseph Homes between Great Barton and Bury St Edmunds. It impacts not just the A14, but the A143, which forms the site's northwestern boundary. A quirk of our planning regime is that, the, is that only the local council in which the development takes place, has a right to automatically being consulted over planning applications. As well as the 1,375 homes in this case, there are a similar number proposed on the A143 between this huge new development and Stanton. Traffic for existing residents will increase, with congestion and overloading of road junctions. All the new developments will nearly double the current traffic levels on the A143. 
the government requires local authorities to create space for a specific number of homes, but not the funding for the infrastructure to service them. It does not help when local authorities have seen cuts of 60% in their government funding since, since 2010. A more strategic approach needs to be taken. Parish councils exist in order to represent the interests of their residents and the community at large, but they are small and can face difficulty in fighting major developments, especially when the impact is over more than one planning authority. So far, all the major villages have asked to be involved as well as many smaller ones. It is hoped that a united voice on the traffic issue in particular may give some added pressure on all our elected councils, but particularly government. We need more houses, not just the more expensive executive style which, which benefit the developers most. There is a, a desperate shortage of cheaper rented properties, particularly social housing, which are truly affordable. Um, a, a building them will need protection from right to buy, which can be achieved through a community land trust, similar to that being developed in Newmarket. It seems obvious that we need comprehensive strategic plans for infrastructure, employment and public transport secured prior to development, giving our planners the ability to take decisions without fear of the developer challenging those decisions with expensive lawyers and consultants, while local authorities have only our local taxes to fund them, and the government siding with the build, whatever and wherever the developers want. Perhaps our local MPs could help to argue for a comprehensive strategic infrastructure for all phases of a development or where several occur over a relatively short time. We need to think of more in innovative ways of improving the lives of all residents, existing and new. This letter is from Avril Dawson. She's the chair of Amnesty International in Bury St Edmunds. Her letter is entitled, We Need a Proper Asylum System. With regard to John Scott's reply to my letter regarding sending refugees to Rwanda, the Bury Free Press, May the 6th, I'm sorry that I did not include possible solutions such as the following. The government should focus on creating a humane and properly functioning asylum system working collaboratively with other countries to establish safe routes and settling up assessment centres, for example in British embassies, as well as in France. The response to the war in Ukraine has shown how much public sympathy and support there is for refugees. We should combat xenophobia and racial discrimination, ensuring that people understand the stories of those who are fleeing. This is not a party political point. Our compassion leads us to challenge injustice regarding human rights wherever it is found. Jerry Crees of Stowmarket asks, should the County Council really get extra powers? I note that Suffolk is, is bidding for a devolution deal without an elected mayor. If successful, this will give the County Council increased powers on matters currently decided by central government and presumably an increased budget from, from the government to cover the additional expense incurred. Is this, is this the same county council that has for years failed to provide adequate education for SEND pupils whose school transport policy causes massive upset and personal expense to parents in rural areas, which is unable to maintain the roads it is responsible for to a standard where those using two wheels risk injury from potholes every time they ride? Is it the same council which fails to replace road signs when they have rusted through and fallen, but has the money to erect new green lane signs at each end of single track roads, and which fails to obtain money for public transport from the government of its own persuasion because its case was not robust enough while all our surrounding counties managed to get some? Who are the keen exponents of this idea? Wouldn't be the county council, would it? Boris Johnson and his government have pr provoked 
a rush of letters and starting with these ones. The first is from Ashley Mayer from Milton. He says, standards do matter. Sir, my MP, Dr Therese Coffey, tweets, the Prime Minister has got the big calls right. But please help me. How do I explain to a young person that standards in public life matter? And are they there to be honoured, not bypassed, when not convenient? This letter is from Alan Wilcox of Needham Market. Sir, I have a suggestion for our MP Tom Hunt concerning his reported warning to Prince Charles over the comments attributed to the Prince over the deportation of migrants to Rwanda. The deportations seem likely to, to, to damage the reputation of this country and are described by UNHCR, the UN Refuge Agency, as likely to be found unlawful. In my opinion, Mr Hunt would do more to safeguard our reputation by demanding that Johnson abandon his policy of ignoring the international protocol on Northern Ireland, which he himself negotiated in a, a, a dishonest attempt to achieve a Brexit, the claimed, the claimed benefits of which are yet to appear. And Clifford Davy from Stowmarket says, Jack of all trades? Question mark. Sir, Boris Johnson is often filmed visiting factories and building sites. He performs the various tasks for the cameras. A case of jack of all trades, but master of none. I assume party planner is one the, the PM has not attempted. And um, my next two short letters reflect on Boris Johnson and democracy. And the first letter is from Colin Rossini of, of Dover Court. Sir... Vanity got the best of Boris Johnson long ago, so let him and his motley cabinet crew continue to shame the nation, our monarch, and all that's significant and decent about being British. It is clear to all the tawdry Tories only belie democracy when they are running, or should that be ruining it? And then another short letter from John Dell of Shotley. Sir, on June the 23rd, 2016... 32% of the British electorate voted for the UK to leave the EU. We left. On June the 6th, 2022, 41% of Conservative, of Conservative MPs voted for Mr Johnson to go. He stayed. A democracy can be a very strange animal. Ian Pulford from Capel St Mary says, Actions make me ashamed. Sir, Ipswich MP Tom Hunt says that Prince Charles should be careful in whom he confides, but, in my view, Tom Hunt should be careful not to throw stones when he lives in a glass house. Mr Hunt is a supporter of a Prime Minister who has lost, if he ever had one, his moral compass. By voting in support of the man who I regard as a compulsive liar and who is steadfastly bringing this country to its knees, he is building towards his own electoral demise. Added to this, Mr Hunt is a supporter of the odious plan to send refugees to Rwanda. I understand the desire to bring an end to the evil trade of people trafficking, but surely this could be better achieved by processing refugees in France, as is being done for Ukrainians. Over 70% of the refugees who make it to the UK are given leave to stay here. Why do they want to come to the UK? Well, the answer often relates to them having family here already, or being able to already speak English. Sending genuine refugees to an unstable country should be a criminal act. There have been governments in the past with whom I have strongly disagreed, but Johnson and his acolytes, such as Tom Hunt, make me ashamed of our government. And now we come to the features, and this feature article looks at East Anglia's forgotten blitz. It was more than a century ago when, when monsters appeared in the skies over Norfolk and Suffolk dropping bombs. And Derek James reports. <clears throat> War has returned to Europe and our thoughts are with the people of Ukraine. We watch in horror at what is happening as buildings explode and people die. Some of you reading this will remember the Second World War when the Luftwaffe set out on missions to cause death and destruction in this country. We called the main attacks the Blitz, and Norwich was singled out for special attention, with hundreds of men, women and children dying. But what of the victims of the First World War across our region, and the rest of the country, 
more than 100 years ago. There were no television cameras to record events, and press censorship meant newspapers could not say where the raids had been. One man who knows more than most about the impact on Britain of the giant airships, Zeppelins, is author Ian Castle. His first book, Zeppelin Onslaught, The Forgotten Blitz, 1914-1915, was a moving look at the start of the, of the onslaught and how the first raids in 1915 killed Samuel Smith and Merthyr Taylor in Great Yarmouth and Percy Goat and Alice Gaisley in King's Lynn. His latest offering looks in amazing detail at the following year, 1916, as the world entered the second full year of global conflict when the cities, towns and villages of Britain continued to lay vulnerable to aerial aerial bombardment. It is a fascinating account of the impact of the raids across the country, including Norfolk and Suffolk, and illustrates how important it is that we should not forget those who died during the raids and where the bombs fell. At the start of the war, German Zeppelin airships and seaplanes had come and gone at will, their most testing opposition being the British weather. This was the first assault from the air. Civilians were now standing on the front line, the home front, like the soldiers who had marched off to war. Then, early in in 1916, responsibility for Britain's aerial defence passed from the Admiralty to the War Office. And as German air attacks intensified, new ideas and plans made dramatic improvements to our defence capability. The results, giving early warnings of approaching raiders, were spectacular and lifted the mood of the nation and changed the way the campaign was fought over Britain. The German air campaign against Britain in the First World War was the first sustained strategic aerial bombing campaign in history. There has never been a national register of the names of civilians killed in air raids in the Great War, but now author Ian Castle has, for the first time, managed to trace and list the names of those dials killed by airships in 1916. And finally, we can remember the victims. And here's another feature. Tonight, Thursday the 16th of June, is exactly ten years since a blaze destroyed Cupola House in Bury St Edmunds. We take a look back at that night with Camille Berryman and Adam Howlett. June the 16th, 2012, was a night which will be remembered vividly by many Bury St Edmunds residents. It was the night Cupola House burned down. As word spread that one of the town's historic buildings was on fire, scores of people gathered on the ground, abandoning their Saturday night plans to watch the sad demise of what was then a Strada Italian restaurant. With firefighters battling the inferno, Siemens Building of Thurston was on the scene as flames still lit the building, helping to secure the site under the direction of structural engineers. We were in attendance with the fire service throughout the night to make the building safe, said Siemens contracts manager David Hart, who was on the scene. Firefighters needed to enter the building, but couldn't have done so while the building was structurally unsound. Stephen Reason, Siemens associate, went to the Travers the next morning. At one point the facade was expanding due to the heat of the fire, said Stephen. Siemens helped to remove a small strip from the front elevation to reduce the pressure, allowing them to save the front of the building. I don't think there would have been much left if it hadn't been done. We were down there while the firefighters finished their work. It took two to three days before the fire was fully out. The rear of the building had collapsed in and there was just a heap of timbers, bricks and debris. It was almost reduced to a pile of rubble. Once the fire was extinguished, an investigation was launched when the remains of the building were trawled through to discover the cause of the blaze. It was almost like a crime scene, so we needed to be very careful. They needed to find the cause of the fire before the evidence was destroyed, said Stephen. In September 2012, a fire chief said the blaze started after a cook working in Strada's basement kitchen, accidentally misjudged the use of a safety blanket, fanning flames into the restaurant's ventilation system, which spread them to the building's upper floors. 
By this time, Siemens had already constructed temporary scaffolding to protect what was left of Cupola House before the big clean-up. This was achieved by suspending a skip from a crane and using cherry pickers to access, the, to access the site from the air. Crews could then transfer debris into the skip without touching the floor. However, the team was surprised by what was found beneath the foundations. Ben Watling, Siemens' production director, said, When conducting a risk investigation in the cellar, we discovered a well under the floor, and also a small room was uncovered. The building has been worked on significantly throughout the years, so there was a feeling you just didn't know what you would find. Although the fire was an enormous shock for Berry, thoughts quickly turned to how to restore Cupola House to its former glory. When Siemens won the, restore, the restoration contract, thus started years of painstaking planning alongside Purcell Architects, English Heritage, Local Authority Building Control and the Project Committee. Ben said the high-profile job needed to be completed quickly as people and businesses were negatively affected. Shops closed as a result of the fire did not all reopen until November 2012, while the last residents of flats evacuated through the blaze did not return home until December that year. As most of the rear of Cupola House had been destroyed, the engineering solution was for a steel frame to fit inside the fabric of what remained. However, Siemens was determined to retain the building's eccentric lines, typical of the era it was built, meaning its engineers had to deal with out-of-plumb angles, bows in the walls and wonky floors. Ben said, Due to the constraints of the site, we had to get the steel in like a Meccano kit. We were overlaying a steel frame with the existing oak framework, some of which had warped over the years. This made it a very challenging job, making sure everything fitted together in a building that was hundreds of years old. For the interior, Siemens worked closely with Purcell Architects, using photographic records to plan the restoration. The building work was officially completed in August 2016. Ben said it was one of the most challenging projects Siemens had faced, but the team relished the chance to be involved in such an important project, adding that although the building looks much like the Cupola House of old, its new steel frame would help to protect it for generations to come. We were really pleased with how it turned out. To think it was a pile of rubble when we started is remarkable, he said. In restoring a building like Cupola House, its history should be reflected in the building work. It should be the best quality craftsmanship, sourced locally, which is what would have happened when it was built back in 1693. In 2017, Siemens won the two LABC Building Excellence Awards for its work on the project, while in March 2018 it won Heritage Project of the Year at the NFB Awards. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Sheila, Pat, Carol and David, it's goodbye. Goodbye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio. Thank you.